Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Apology. Nothing personal word of the day. It's apology. Who now? What's happening in the sports world? Our guy. We said we'd never talk about him again on the show, but we're going to. We're going to talk about Antonio Brown. He's on a tour. He got a tour manager, probably his agent, maybe a family member, but doubtful. And he's going from organization to organization where he's created a problem. Steelers, Raiders, Patriots, generally the entire league. Well, my view to you, Antonio, is you are a day late and a dollar short. You need to find a new tour manager, but if you have a chance of playing in the NFL again, take two words of advice for me. One, phone. Get rid of it. Stop recording your rants, because if you don't record them, then there's a chance you could actually deny them. Two, don't put yourself in a compromising position. Don't do something where we as a front office would say to you, we don't want that person in our clubhouse. We don't want that person near any of our other players, young or old. You have a lot left to do if you have a chance to play in the NFL again. I personally don't think Antonio Brown will take another snap. I think he's been Kaepernicked, and it's his own fault. And now he's going on this crazy apology tour. Apologies. Everybody needs a little time away. I heard her say, how about the Boston Red Sox getting one thing right this week? How's it going for them? I have been defending the Red Sox, saying that I totally agree with the trading of Mookie Betts, that I think they've done very well by their fans, that their payroll is still, even though it's below the luxury tax threshold, it is still so high. They signed players you wanted them to sign. Chris Sale, Nathan Evaldi. Last year at this time, you were applauding the signing of Chris Sale. Guess what? You sign one guy, you got to trade another guy. That's the reality. So the Mookie Betts deal is going to happen. There's a lot of complications because there have been some medical chicanery going on. But the news of the day has been expected. If you're watching here on CBS Sports HQ, I appreciate you tuning in. Welcome to the queue. If you're downloading and listening to the pod, I appreciate your loyalty as well. The Red Sox, breaking news, are hiring Ron Renicky. Ah, if you're loyal to the queue, you know that's not breaking. We knew that was coming the minute Alex Cora got let go. Why is it an interesting choice for the Red Sox? Nah, I don't think we need to tell you why. Instead, it was the only choice for the Red Sox. When you're going into a season that starts spring training in about a week, you need to have someone there who's been around the block with your team. Someone who knows the players, knows the front office, knows exactly what's expected of him. Knows how to run a spring training, which Ron Renneke knows, having been a manager and a really good manager for the Milwaukee Brewers. Before Craig Council, hometown hero, comes home. Why is it the Red Sox can't just announce it? Why does there have to be so much back and forth on Twitter today? Rumors, reports, 
Ron Renke will be named manager of the Red Sox. We can now confirm we've got three sources. Ron Renke will be named. Then the Red Sox have to make a statement. We have not yet completed our process. We have not named a manager. When we do, we'll tell you. Boston, PR department, it's time to freshen up your skills a little bit. In this day and age, you've got to get out in front of the news. You know things are going to be leaked. Do you know how to stop leaking from happening? Go to a Madonna concert. Give up your phone upon entry into the room. Then no one can leak anything to anyone. Get in there with your GM, with your, there's right, the new GM, Chaim Bloom. Decide who the manager is going to be. Then call the other candidates. Tell them they're not getting the job. Call Ron, tell him he is going to get the job, and here's the contract we're offering. It's not a negotiation. Take it or leave it. He will take it within five seconds. Then you can let people leave the room, give them their phones back, and rest assured news will be leaked from insiders in every organization. Isn't that a lot easier than having word get out, then having to deny it, and then again having to acknowledge it that, yes, we've gone ahead to hire Ron Renicki? It's a complete disaster the way these teams are run right now because they don't recognize that the world has changed even since I started in the game in 1999, first season 2000. We can control the news cycle just a little better than you can now. In order to stay ahead of Twitter, ahead of everybody who has sources and looking for information, who doesn't double check, they just release immediately, and most times they're right. In order to get ahead of it, take control. Meet the media yourself and announce what your plan is. Don't make me speculate why you're waiting to name Ron Renneke until MLB's investigation's done. We know the reason. I know the reason. Now you're going to know it. The Red Sox need to make sure that Ron Renneke is in no way implicated in the Red Sox sign-stealing punishment. There cannot be a report that comes from Major League Baseball that says Alex Cora, brought his entire scandal-ridden plan from Houston, brought it to Boston, and then implemented it. And by the way, he had the help and knowledge of his coaching staff, specifically his bench coach, Ron Renneke. Ladies and gentlemen, the new manager of the Red Sox, Ron Renneke. No, not going to work that way. Instead, the Red Sox are calling on the commissioner who they just spent time with in Orlando. We're going to talk about that later in the show for an owner's meeting. And you say to commissioner, you'd call him Rob. Hey, Rob, uh, you're going to be done soon, right? And then there's some winking that goes on. Of course, we're going to be done. Oh, is Ron going to be implicated or mentioned because we plan on hiring him? If the commissioner says, "Ooh, you may want to hold off a sec, then you know you can't hire him at all. If the commissioner says, no problem, good hire, glad to have him back in the game, you know that there will be no responsibility placed on Ronnie's shoulders. But my question is, if you were in the dugout and the Red Sox are found in any way culpable for anything that went on, whether it was Dave Dombrowski, the old president of baseball ops, Alex Cora, the old manager, any former or current players or former or current pitchers, players, front office, development people, can you really tell me that Ron Renneke is the bench coach, had no idea? He had nothing to do with it? Well, here's what a bench coach does. A bench coach for your team is in charge of game management, in charge of the dugout, making sure that pinch hitters are ready, making sure that he's communicating to the manager four innings ahead, 
by the way, this matchup could be coming up in the seventh. Let's make sure we keep this hitter ready for this, this pitcher ready for that. When the games aren't going on, that bench coach is aware of everything going on in the clubhouse. That bench coach isn't just sitting in the coach's room with no idea, sort of reckless indifference toward what's happening. He's the eyes and ears of his manager. Is it possible that Alex Cora had an entire system and we're going to be led to believe, like we were in Houston, that there was one person responsible, that no one else had any idea of anything? It's laughable. But for the moment, we're going to say that's exactly what's going to happen because otherwise, Ron Renke has no chance to be named the new manager. How about Andre Drummond? Andre Drummond. Where's that piece of paper, Coca? That's right. Nope, didn't have time. Hello, Matthew. Andre Drummond is a player who played for the Detroit Pistons. You may know him as the man leading the league in rebounding. I may know him as someone who loves the show, nothing personal with David Sampson. Andre Drummond was traded to the Cleveland Cavaliers. And instead of walking out the door into the sweet night gently, by the way, live on the air, here comes Coca running to me with a piece of paper that was stuck on the printer. By the way, Matthew, day late, dollar short, not even going to read it now. Andre Drummond had an opportunity to leave Detroit sort of as a mensch. Go on to Cleveland. He can't be happy. He was rumored to maybe go to a contender. Instead, he's going to a team with a worse record, if such a thing is possible, to a team in complete shambles. We have highlighted the issues with the Cavaliers. But Andre Drummond then said the following. I'm not going to quote exactly because I didn't have the piece of paper that I was supposed to have. Something like this. If there's one thing I know about basketball now, there's no such thing as friends I think he mentioned loyalty or, or, or love. There's no friendship, love, peace, loyalty. I gave my life to the Detroit Pistons only to get no heads up that I'm going to be traded. I now realize that this is just a business. Andre, we do not owe it to you as a player to give you a heads up when you may be traded. When I ran a team, I like to keep some players I'd like to keep some players in the know, some players completely in the dark. How did I choose who I'd want to talk with? People who I trusted, players who I had a relationship with, players who I felt the organization owed something to, even though everyone else in the organization said, hey, the way we do it is we keep everyone in the dark. The reason why you keep players in the dark is that there's no reason to discuss with them what your plans are. Think about where you work. Think about this studio at CBS Sports HQ. Do you think the people in charge of CBS Sports HQ, when they're talking about moving studios or talking about changing assignments, do you think they sit down with me, a host of a show, or a, tech, or a PA, or a director and say, hey, we're thinking of maybe moving the studio three blocks to the left because we're getting a nice new lease with better terms. It's laughable. Of course we're not. The IT guys are only told because they've got to build out the studio. Players do not need to know that they may or may not be traded. Is it a courtesy? Maybe. Is it necessary to extend courtesies to players? Never when it comes to where they'll be playing. Your job is to show up to where your game is that particular night where you're told to show up when you're told to show up. 
Andre to have learned this lesson is classic. I hope younger players are paying attention. I hope he now realizes that the best thing he can do is just play and treat your own career like it's a business as well. I think players do that already. Why do players hire agents? Do they do it because they want to give away 5% of their career earnings? Do they do it because they want to surround themselves with e- themselves with even more psychophants? I'll, I'll pause while you look for that word. Pausing, psychophants, yeah. No, that's not why they have agents. They have agents because agents know better how to do the job of negotiating contracts for players. Just like players know how to perform on the court better than executives, even executives who are former players or executives, in my case, who have never played. If we all stay in our lane and do our job, we have a chance to build an organization that has a chance to succeed both on and off the court. When I say stay in my lane, that doesn't mean you don't talk to people in different lanes. It doesn't mean you don't try to gather information from every car in every lane. What it means is you make sure that everyone knows what his or her job is. Andre just figured out, Andre Drummond, I'm happy for him. He just figured out that his job is to play and that the business of basketball will always, always win the day. Well, is he one of my winners or losers? You know, one of the things that's funny about uh, deadlines and off seasons, there is such an appetite for writers here at CBS, anywhere people are writing or they're on TV or streaming, however you're getting your content, who doesn't like a winners and losers list? Right. It started right. Fashion. The Oscars are this weekend. We're going to talk about that. There'll be winners and losers of the red carpet. Everyone likes it because there's sort of a finality. That's why I love sports. At the end of every game, I either won or lost. It's binary. You're either a winner or a loser on the field. But when we're making lists of winners and losers for, let's say, the NBA trade deadline, that's not binary. That's completely subjective. As a front office executive, do you know how carefully we used to read the winners and losers of the offseason or the winners or lose and losers of the trade deadline? Do you know how much weight we put in that? Look at that floating like Forrest Gump's feather. Zero weight. But I'm going to give you some winners or losers because I made a list and I know the front offices aren't paying attention, but you are. I'm not calling the Miami Heat a winner. Igudala is. Didn't play a game for the Memphis Grizzlies. I almost said the Vancouver Grizzlies. Yikes. Didn't play a game for them and found himself all of a sudden in one of the top four seeds on a team that will certainly be playing playoff basketball. That makes him a winner. Did he get himself out of Memphis by being a bad guy? Probably. Maybe. Doesn't matter to me. He's out. You win. I like what the Clippers did. Clippers win. You know, I'm not saying that Marcus Morris was the best player to get during the deadline. I'm not saying that as the lead 20-point scorer for the Knicks, he's even going to be a 10-point scorer. I'm not here to break down Marcus Morris. I'm here to say the Clippers felt that three games back of the Lakers, even with the way they're doing load management with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, they wanted to get some sort of score, some sort of someone to bring in to show their locker room, listen, we love where we're at. We're not satisfied. As Doc Rivers said, the best way to honor Kobe Bryant would be to win the whole damn thing. Winners, Lakers and Bucks. 
How can the Lakers, let's focus on the Lakers. Why do I have the Los Angeles Lakers as one of my winners? And here's a spoiler alert. They're one of my losers too. I'll get to that. Why are they a winner? When you have the number one seed in your conference at the trade deadline, by definition, you're a winner to me. No matter what people in the media say about who the winners and losers are, you've gotten to this point. You're leading the conference. You have enough to get it done. Losers. I'm furious with the Timberwolves front office. Furious. I don't care they got D'Angelo Russell. I want to know why they would reward the public moaning and groaning of their star player, Carl Anthony Towns. Why would you do something to make him happy? This is a person you pay a tremendous amount of money to, and he is publicly criticizing you and your team. Here's how to reward Cat, I think his nickname is. Do nothing. I would have gotten rid of him. I certainly would not have gotten him his good friend. Losers, T-Wolves front office. Second loser, Knicks fans. This hurts me right here. I'm pointing to the wrong side because I'm looking in the mirror. Right here. It hurts me in my heart. Yes, I do have a heart. I'm a Knicks fan. The best news I have is that they're hiring WWW, Leon Rose. I'm supposed to be okay with that after decades of incompetence. And I still am supposed to pay one of the highest average ticket prices in all of sports to go to a game. Makes me a loser. Three, Lakers. Losers. Winners and losers. Yes, they are. I think they're going to need help. All the Lakers fans out there think they're absolutely fine. I think in order to get through a playoff series and to win four to seven thrice, they needed some reinforcements. I like the idea of Palinka, their agent who runs the team. That's supposed to be funny because agents running teams are now called executives, but they're actually just agents who are now running teams. You don't change your stripe just because you're named the president or GM of a team. You're an agent. So the agent running the Lakers is taking a chance here. He's taking a chance that getting Anthony Davis in the offseason was enough, and they will get all the way to and through the finals and give them the best chance they have to re-sign Mr. Davis. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. So you want to talk to Samson. I like this segment. Thank you for following me at Twitter at David P. Samson. DM me anytime you want. DM me a question. I'll get to it. This was a good one. Today I was asked, can you please tell us what you would say to your team after a trade deadline? I love that. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do an entire clubhouse meeting for you from start to finish, how I would meet the team. And specifically, this would be after the deadline. 
So if you're listening, I'm going to describe what I'm doing. If you're watching, then you'll see what I'm doing. So you walk through the front door, you walk to the clubhouse. The first thing you do is you stop in the kitchen. There's been an announcement that there's going to be a mandatory team meeting. When the trade deadline is at 3 p.m., you generally hold the meeting before batting practice, but after the deadline. If you're at home, batting practice for a 7 o'clock game, let's say you have to be on the field to stretch at 4, that means mandatory meeting at 3.45. I don't want to ever do a meeting after BP before the game. It's too close to the game. I don't want to do a mandatory meeting after the game because then it seems that it's a knee-jerk reaction to either winning or losing that game. And this type of meeting is not the rah-rah, we-can-do-it meeting because then I only do those meetings before we've got our best pitcher going against the opponent's worst pitcher. When you read about a team meeting as your team is about to face the other team's ace, you know that that front office does not have it going right. You do a team meeting before you are going to win a game, so then after the game you get to say, hey, that was a good team meeting. So I go in the kitchen. I grab a little shtup of something out of the food room, maybe a chicken tender, maybe a little sandwich, some finger food, maybe pour some Cheerios in my hand and take an Oreo, get a water, walk to the clubhouse. Team meetings are done always in the main clubhouse. What happens is the clubhouse is in a circle. Everyone gets in their chair, turns around. You've got players on the couches, which are in front of the TVs. Then you've got in the back of the room, the training staff. You've got the coaching staff. In the front of the room, you have the manager, you have the GM, you have the president, maybe one or two of the coaches, but the majority are either spread through the room or standing in the back of the room. Players who are in their chairs, turn their chairs around, phones off, paying attention. You only walk in to start the meeting once every player's in place. You have the traveling secretary close the door, so there's no media, there's no anyone. So you close the outside door that gets you into the clubhouse corridor. Then you close the inside door, which goes to the actual room of the clubhouse. And you've told the chef in the kitchen not to clang any pans. You've got the leader of the team shut the music off. You're ready to roll. Starts at 3.45. You start exactly at 3.45. Baseball is a game for OCDers. It's phenomenally great for me because everything is done by the minute and by the clock. When we say first pitch is at 7.07, guess when first pitch is? 7.07. When we say the bus is leaving 22 minutes after the game, guess what? 22 minutes after last pitch, the bus is leaving. So I will purposefully wait. I will be in position. I will watch the clock. 3.44 and 57 seconds, silence. 8, 9, 3.45. Thank you guys for getting together. I appreciate this. I'm going to make it quick. So I tell you, I know that this can be a time of year where you start wondering, are you going to be here? Is there pressure? Are you going to be let go? Are you going to be traded? Are we going to add? Are we going to subtract? Where do we think this team is? Well, you can see by the moves that we've made. Sidebar, this is not the meeting. Sidebar, this is after no moves are made, and the team is about six games back of the wild card. Our view at this time is we are very proud of who is in this room. I personally believe that the players in this room are more than capable of getting us to play in October. When I look around and I look not just at the rotation, I look at the bullpen, I look at our lineup, I look at our role players, I look at the way you go out and play the game right. 
And I say to myself, and as a group, we decided upstairs that there was no one that we could have brought in that we felt was going to make us appreciably better. Are there names out there, guys? Yes, there were names out there. You read about your own names. You know very well because I've told you. We do talk about everyone at the deadline. If we get a call, Tom, and they're asking about you, we're going to listen. Even you, Giancarlo, we're going to listen. But AJ, you know very well if we can't do better than you. By the way, I'm mentioning names of some guys who are on the team sidebar. This is not the meeting. Because as part of a clubhouse meeting, I would always catch eyes and single out specific players. Why do I do that? Number one, I want to make sure they're paying attention. Number two, I want to make sure they're going to be able to handle what I'm saying. So after the meeting is done, they're not going to talk too much trash about it and just let it go and go play. And three, it sort of lightens the atmosphere. Giancarlo, back to the meeting. Giancarlo, you know very well we are going to talk. Everybody's name gets out there. Leaks are everywhere. I don't do it so you're going to be distracted. We don't do it because we're trying to ruin your day or upset your family. We're doing it because we're always seeing if we can get better. Yes, there were names out there that we would have taken, but guess what? They wanted pieces in this room that we were not willing to give up because we believe that you 25 men, you are the men who will carry us to October. And I just want to conclude by saying this. We've got two months to go. And in August and September, you know very well that if you come to play every single game and you take this as seriously as we do, and you've got the desire that matches ours, we have a chance to be one of eight in the postseason. Thank you, guys. And then I just leave. Now, I don't walk out of the clubhouse after a meeting. I walk back into the kitchen. Why? Because A, I want more free food. B, I'm a little thirsty, so I'm going to grab something to drink. But C, I want to be there for the FUs. Not those FUs, the follow-ups. I want to be around in the clubhouse if there's any questions. And I've had tons over the years. Players come up, hey, who was I, who wanted me? Hey, where was I going to go? Hey, was there any chance of getting my best friend, Carl Anthony Towns? Is there any chance that that was actually going to happen? So I always would stay around for about seven minutes for any of the FUs, and then I would leave the clubhouse or go into the dugout and get ready for batting practice. I appreciate it. So you want to talk to Samson? That is what a clubhouse meeting would be. Okay, we're going from sports to something way, way more serious. Um, Don't get me wrong, I love sports. I took my job very seriously. I watched a movie the other day that uh, it puts the D in disturbing and the S in scary, and it's not about the coronavirus, but it is about China. It's a documentary called One Child Nation. How many of you know that in China... For about 30 years in the 80s, of course, that's only 10 years of a decade, but let's say from 75 to 2005, for 30 years, there was a law in China that you could only have one child. Now, you're asking me, how would anyone ever enforce that sort of law? Well, the Chinese government would take kids away if they noticed a second child was being born. They would force abortions on women who were pregnant with a second child. They would make families have to hide away who had extra children and hope to God they wouldn't get caught. 
the concept of the one-child nation was promulgated by all sorts of marketing by this communist country, telling people that if you have one child, you will be blessed by God, that you are doing the right thing for your republic, that in order to be strong, we need only one child. Now, the Chinese government will tell you that the purpose of One Child Nation is because they had a population boom they could not control. And if people didn't have only one child, they were going to run out of food, run out of services. Really? That's your story? That's your story, that you violently made women give up their second born or forced late-term abortions. I'm talking like 39-week type of stuff. Dump the kids in the trash because you were worried about overpopulation and lack of food? Well, here we are in 2020, and guess what China's saying now? That was supposed to be a beep because I think China just cut off our signal. Hello? Can anyone hear me? Are we still on? Okay, we're still on. What China said now is two children. We want you to have two children. That is the best way to help our country. Why it was one and now it's two? Interesting thing happened when you only allowed one child and killed off the rest. Everybody's old and there's no way to take care of all of the aging people. They need to find some young people. So now all of a sudden, China is a two-child nation. This is a documentary that infuriated me. It is difficult to watch in every possible way a documentary can be difficult. And the woman who did the documentary, guess what? She grew up exactly around when it was a one-child nation. She interviews the mayors of towns who had to enforce the one-child rule. She gets stories of people who had to take children away. And then it segues into adoption. And all of the babies from China who were adopted by North American families during this time period who had no idea that they were adopting children who had been left at the side of the road because of the one-child policy. I think it's about an hour and a half, one-child nation. If you want to actually broaden your intellectual horizons, check it out. (sighs) Okay. Um, Guess what Sunday is? Yes. All right. Here's what you do Sunday. You wake up, go for a run, shower is optional, get some food, hunker down, Oscar Sunday. It's a better pregame than Super Bowl Sunday. Nah, not next year it won't be. This year it was. Nah, maybe not. It depends. Depends how long my contract is here at CBS. No, but in all seriousness, it's probably my first favorite day of the year. I admit it. Time to give you my Oscar picks. It's the Oscar day. Now, people are saying that there aren't a lot of good competitions this year. It's an absolute known who's going to win. But I'm going to tell you who's going to win. I'm going through just 11 of my 24 on the ballot because we don't have time to go through more. Okay, animated feature. Toy Story 4 is the winner. Can you imagine the fourth installment of a franchise is going to win Best Animated Feature? A special call-out to my friend Josh Gad, Frozen 2. I actually thought that was my favorite animated feature of the year. Toy Story 4. Documentary full-length feature. We reviewed it here. It should win. It will win. It better win. It's called Honeyland. You're a nothing personal subscriber. You've watched it, heard of it. Okay, I got an upset alert. Upset alert. That's what we do during March Madness and here at CBS on the queue. We've got an upset alert. Number two seed down six with four minutes to go. Upset alert. 
international feature. I'm going pain and glory. How can it be that I'm the only person in the world picking pain and glory instead of Parasite? Well, you're going to find out in about two minutes of showtime. Original screenplay, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Quentin Tarantino wrote this, and he's going to get another Oscar for it. You are living through who could be what could be an era of maybe, maybe the greatest screenwriter in history. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. If you've seen it once, watch it again if you can this weekend. The second time through, and I just watched it a second time recently. I can't remember where I was, but it was late at night, and I did not fall asleep. And I actually liked it better the second time than the first. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, best original screenplay. Okay, adapted screenplay, Jojo Rabbit. I think this is an easy one. Uh, The next four are slam dunks. Unfortunately, they're the four biggest categories of the night. Supporting actor, supporting actress, best actor, best actress. Let's start supporting actor. We are going to get an acceptance speech by the most beautiful man in the world. No, George Clooney was not nominated, and neither was Matthew Coca. Can you imagine? Here's how Coca's adding to the show today. He just whispered in my ear when I said, the most beautiful man in the world will win an Oscar. He said me. Talk about hubris. Me, not meaning Samson. He meant Coca. I don't think that's hubris. I think it's complete delusion. I mean, he's not the worst-looking guy in the world, but Brad Pitt? Come on, Matthew. Yeah, he's going to win once upon a time in Hollywood. Can't wait. Will he bring a date? Doubt it. Will he talk about his love life? Guaranteed. Will there be anything political brought up during the acceptance speech? Not by him, but by others. Will I be able to look past the insanity of people talking politics, no matter what their point of view is? Yeah, because I want to hear it and I want to watch it. Supporting actress, Laura Dern, Bruce Dern's daughter. Laura Dern, supporting actress. Marriage Story, Slam Dunk. I told you to watch the movie. Remember I said, don't watch, watch it with your spouse. Watch it alone. Remember? I hope you did that. Best actor. If you don't want to watch Joaquin Phoenix accept best actor as the Joker, then you just, I don't know where you are, where your head is. The, the, the viewership for the Oscars is going to peak at best actor. So here's Joaquin Phoenix. He's going to have a, he's going to have some sort of beard. He's going to have sort of his eyes are going to be a little squinty. I'd say 80% chance he's stoned. He'll have a tuxedo that is uh do we have to beep out stoned, Mikey? I don't think so. It's just stoned. Okay. He'll have a talk where you won't really know what he's talking about except you'll look at him and say, "My god, is he talented." Joaquin Phoenix. Best actress, you won't recognize her. I won't, but she was darn good as Judy Garland. Too bad Liza Minnelli doesn't want any part of this, Judy Garland's daughter, because I wish she'd see the movie. Renee Zellweger, best actress. Slam dunks. All right, here's the two that may not win, but in my opinion, they should. Best director, best picture. It's going to be a split. It used to be best director and best picture would be married, and I don't mean like legally. They would be together on the same picture. I'm going to give it to Sam Mendes for American Beauty. Best director. I know it's not American Beauty. Uh, Can you imagine Sam Mendes is the same director of American Beauty as he is for 1917? Could there be two different, more different movies than American Beauty in 1917? To direct 1917 took a level of skill that Scorsese, obviously bigger, better name, no doubt. Could he be the winner for Irishman? No. Tarantino, I'm going to give him the screenplay, as you know, not the director for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What about Bong Joon-ho for Parasite? 
good competition. But from a director's standpoint, what Mendez did for 1917 was spectacular. He ought to win. And finally, drum roll, please. Best picture. I'm going against the grain here. People are choosing 1917 for best picture. I'm actually going with Parasite. That's why it didn't win international feature for me. That's why Bong Joon-ho didn't win best director. The best picture is Parasite. That is the best movie I saw all year. How could I not choose it to be best picture when it's the only movie of the year that ended up in my top 100? Parasite. Can't wait to talk Oscars again Monday. You got another seven-minute segment Monday. We're going to talk clothing, winners, losers. (laughs) Get it? Winners and losers? Yeah, we will. Okay. What am I doing? I want to do Rob. Can we can we talk about Commissioner Manford now, please? So here's how it works at an owner's meeting. I talked to you that uh, the MLB owner's meetings took place this week. The first day of the meeting, you've got committee meetings. It's called the Joint Major League Baseball Owners Meetings. You go to a place, no surprise, they're in Orlando this time of year because it's Florida. Who wouldn't want to be here when it's 75 and sunny every day? And yes, I would like to be sponsored by the Chamber of Commerce. So Rob Manford, has. there's committee meetings, competition committee. We've talked about I was on it. You've got executive council, all sorts of meetings. The second day, then there's a dinner the first night. The commissioner gives a tiny little talk. This talk, the March meeting, February meeting, is always the excitement of the upcoming season. Then you go into the big meeting the next day. That's when there are two to four representatives from each of the 30 teams. You sit in assigned seats and you go through an agenda. It's about two to three hours. Then the commissioner has a smaller meeting, an executive session, which is just one member of each team. So it's 30 people in a room. Then he goes and meets the media. I was always fascinated to know what talking points the commissioner was going to focus on and what he had to do yesterday was painful, but I want to go through the three takeaways from what he talked about because you're going to be interested. Number one, he started to talk about the Tampa Bay Rays and the viability of their two-city solution. I want to just say now for every all the people listening to Nothing Personal and watching, we're not going to call it a two-city solution because it reminds me of the final solution, which is not something I ever want to think about again. I want to teach it and talk about it and make sure no one forgets it, but I don't ever want to say solution. What we're talking about is the Tampa Bay Rays, who are have no stadium in Tampa. They play in the Thunderdome, and if you've ever been to the Thunderdome, you know that it's empty and that there's no way that they can compete from a revenue standpoint. You further know that the Tampa Bay Rays find a way to win 90 games because their front office is so brilliant. But you further know that the owner of the Rays has to get a new ballpark built or else he cannot continue to increase the value of his team. And he can't get anything done in Tampa. So he wants to split the season between Tampa and Montreal. We've talked about it on this show. We're going to talk about it again. There is zero chance of it happening. From a practical standpoint, zero. From a leverage standpoint, it's a solid four. I like the leverage I used, that we were just going to move a team out of town completely. Forget this splitting. You think there's a chance to get a brand new stadium in Tampa and a brand new stadium in Montreal only to have half the home games, half the revenue, and then have your players have to move from one city to the next and some of your staff, or you're going to hire two full-time staffs. No chance from a practical standpoint. I mean, forget about it. 
But the commissioner had to stand up. He had to take the mic, and he does the. Uh, he doesn't do the podium, George Bush, where he holds the two sides of the podium. He doesn't do the Trump, where he puts his fingers in the uh, okay position and talks like that through his nose. Rob is more of just his hands are a little more calm. He sort of grabs under the podium, and the only time he grabs the top of the podium is when he laughs when he when he's self deprecating. And he was self-deprecating when it came to the Mets. But with the Rays, he was dead serious. And he said, listen, this is very viable. And there's a lot of momentum within that room of owners for this two-city solution and the viability of such. I'm not saying that I said that. I'm quoting. Why would he have to say that? The Rays need to solve their stadium problem. But stop if you think that any public official in Tampa or any public official in Canada or Ottawa in Quebec thinks that there's a chance that 41 games and 41 games is going to happen. Second thing, the New York Metropolitans, God, they can't get out of their own way. New York Mets, Rob Manfred had to take the podium and he had to say the deal with Steve Cohn is dead. He confirmed it. There had been speculation all day. Deal's done. The Mets will not be sold to their minority partner for $2.6 billion. All of the cheering that all the Mets fans did, the excitement that Steve Cohn was going to get involved and make great decisions and the Wilpons were going to be gone, all the excitement, a pin was put right in the balloon and Rob had to be the one to say something. That wasn't going to be good enough. So wouldn't you know it, not only did he stand up there and say, hey, the deal's done, but then he said the Wilpons, his good friends Fred and Jeff, were completely, completely guilt-free No problems. They had nothing to do with why the deal fell apart, which had been the rumors that the Wilpons required Jeff to stay involved, that the Wilpons wanted to take Steve Cohn's money and keep making decisions. Forget it. Of course, the Wilpons were involved. But guess what happened? Steve Cohn walked away. The Wilpons walked away. And two hours later, the Mets released a statement. Don't worry, folks. We're still selling. We've hired the investment bank. The consulting firm that currently employs Jeff Wilpon's son called Allen and Company, where Steve Greenberg, the son of Hank Greenberg, a good friend of baseball works. We have given them the business to seek a buyer of the team. Guess what? You don't need to hire a consultant to go out and find people who want to buy a multi-billion dollar team. There's a limited number of people who can do it. And when you say, hello, hello, the Mets are for sale, guess what? It's called an IC, incoming call. Third, he said the Red Sox are going to be done with their investigation. We, we think we're going to be done by the start of spring training. All right, Rob, you're in charge. It means you will be. All right, pick of the day. I didn't do a pick of the day yesterday. I totally forgot. I did the pick. It was right here, and I forgot to say it. But then I tweeted it at David P. Sampson. You're damn right I'm taking credit. We had the Bucks over the Sixers. Thank you for missing your free throws at the end, Ben Simmons. We got ourselves a win, and I'm counting it. All right, guess what Guess what Sunday is? What's a palindrome, Coca? Oh, I'm 11-11-1. He's calling that a palindrome. That is called value added. Thank you. Okay. Uh, XFL starts this weekend. XFL, we've got to wait to see. The XFL is going to last the whole season. Vince McMahon, this is his league. And guess what? We get to bet on the XFL. I'll bet you a dollar. 
right now, a Mortimer Duke dollar, can you name every team and their nickname in the XFL? I have no way to collect on that. I have no way to prove that you do or don't. So I'm just going to tell you that we are starting with a Friday pick for XFL. We're going with the Dallas Renegades. Why? Because they're favored by 10 over the St. Louis Battlehawks. The Renegades over the Battlehawks. 10-point favorite. Why? Maybe because Bob Stoops is the coach. Yeah, that great coach from Oklahoma. Is that possible? I have no idea. The basis of my pick has nothing to do with any level of knowledge whatsoever. It's that the biggest favorite of the weekend is the one most likely to cover. Yeah, I agree. Let's not put too much on it. XFL, Dallas Renegades. Okay, wait to see. Uh, James Paxton is out three to four months, it was reported. For all you Yankee fans out there, how upset are you that one of your – you signed Cole – You have depth in the rotation with the Big Maple. That's James Paxton's nickname. And then it's announced he's out three to four months after back surgery. Two things about this. One of my greatest frustrations as president of a team is when we would take the conservative approach to an injury that there was a great likelihood, greater likelihood than not, would end up in surgery. The Yankees have done it with Tanaka where he needs Tommy John, but you try non-invasive surgery because you don't want him to miss a year. I get that. Even though I don't like waiting when I know a player's going to need Tommy John, I'd rather have the recovery start sooner rather than later. In this case, it is inexcusable that Paxton didn't get the surgery. And I'm not practicing medicine without a license. I'm telling you as an executive, here's my view. They treated it with injections. He got hurt late in the season. They let it calm down, and then he starts to throw, then it hurts, then injections, then he stops, then he starts, then it hurts. Now he gets surgery. Then he's out three to four months. If you did the surgery the day the season ended, guess when three to four months is over? Yeah, now he'd be ready to go for the regular season. Why is it that we do not get the player and the doctors to agree and the GMs sometimes surgery? I'm not saying it's great to cut into a person. Sometimes surgery is the way to get a player back. Now he's going to miss maybe half the season. Wait, wait a minute. Scott Boris's agent came out saying those reports are not true. Paxton is doing great. He will only not even miss the first third of the season. By the way, the season's cut in thirds. First two months are April, May, June, July, August, September. What Boris is saying is he will only miss two months, not three to four. That he may appear in the first third of the season. Wait to see, Scotty B. James Paxton will not be back before June 1st. And it's not that I'm looking for everyone to have surgeries. I just am telling you from my standpoint, it's business. I need you on the field. It's nothing personal. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.